Okay, people, welcome back. This is the Monster Baby Podcast, a curious romp through the worlds of mindfulness and improvisation. Indeed. My name is Lisa Rowland. I'm Ted DeMaison. And we are your hosts. And we have actually a super exciting episode. Episode? Yeah, episode today for you. Uh, I say actually we have a super exciting episode as though we don't always. This one is not my intended connotation, but we have. I'm really excited about what we have coming up for you today. It's our first time that we have invited a guest. Yeah, and a very exciting guest indeed. Today we are talking about. uh, We are talking with Patricia Ryan Madsen, who is the author of a an, an amazing tiny little book called Improv Wisdom. Don't prepare, just show up. She was, yeah, she was also our teacher at Stanford University. Yeah, she started the improv program at Stanford. We talk all about that kind of origin story and how she got going in the world of improvisation and how uh, how she discovered that it was more than just theater games. Yeah, and she's uh, had a long history of study in Japan and with Eastern religions and how that flowed into the work, and we were surprised by a few things we heard from her. Yeah, so we're excited to have her. We're excited to have her on the on the podcast. We had a great time talking with her, and we hope you'll enjoy it. Yeah, one thing that's different about this one, uh, our conversation went on a while, and so we're going to break this up into two separate sections. So stay tuned for uh, part two. Make sure you get that one as well. Yeah, and uh, and let's let part one roll. Here we go. All right, so let's get started. Great. Um, mm-hmm. First of all, Patricia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. We're very, very happy to have you. In fact, I would, I would say that in a way you are the inspiration for this entire thing, which is that mm-hmm. we got started, Ted and I got started working together because we were so inspired by the work we'd done at Stanford and the way, I'll say for myself anyway, for the way that the improv teachings had such a heavy component of this might be an interesting way for you to live your life. <laughs> it interwoven into them and that it's never left me. Yeah, and same with me that uh, took my first improv class, was it uh, almost 30 years ago now? Wow. Uh, and yeah, and it, way back then, kind of turned things around. So it's really great to be here. Well, it's, it's lovely to be talking to two of my favorite students. You're not supposed to say that. Right. And we won't tell anybody else that you said that. Uh, except the 14,000 people that will listen to this <laughs> Yes, that's uh, right. That's about our listenership. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and just for listeners, for your sake, we are here in Patricia's lovely home in El Granada, which is pretty darn close to the coast and so we can hear foghorn and I'm looking out the windows at the sea yeah. at the moment so it's quite a lovely space and thank you very evocative and inspiring it, it is indeed it is here. indeed yeah so uh, so this is our podcast where we call it the curious romp through the worlds of mindfulness and improvisation and I have always thought of the way that you teach improv as very much connected to mindfulness and ways of being and Eastern philosophies and, and this sort of thing. So, wondering if you can just riff a little bit about, you know, what's your experience of that in the way you teach or in the art form itself. Like, that's a great question because um, I never set out to be an improv teacher, much less a sort of a life coach philosopher. But I think uh, everything's grist for the mill, and we know that as improvisers, is that reality provides us with uh, experiences things that we learn, and um, to keep ourselves interested as humans, we make those experiences into something, and hopefully something that's useful uh, mm. or ent- entertaining. Um, and I have the great good fortune to have been hired at, to teach at Stanford. And the, the, the story goes, I, I tell it uh, in my book, Improv Wisdom, that I was trying to find a way to help actors in at Stanford, who were very good at doing anything you ask them to do, how to get in touch with their own um, humanity. What did they think or how did they feel in a given circumstance? So, uh, and I didn't know how to solve that. I I knew how to teach someone how to read a script and and, uh, execute something uh, in an orderly fashion. But um, reality provides, so Keith Johnstone fell in my lap uh, in a sense, right at the time that I was trying to solve <laughs> yeah, this problem, well, almost, we were, um, 
It's funny because I met Keith through my Tai Chi teacher, Al yeah. Huang. Sunlion Al Huang is um, this interesting Chinese fellow who um, taught um, and still teaches Tai Chi, a Tai Chi dance. Some people uh, don't consider his form to be really um, very serious. But anyway, he, he liked to teach with people. And so um, uh, at Esalen one time, he was teaching Tai Chi, and he invited Keith Johnstone to come and teach Tai Chi and improv. So I was introduced to the ideas of improv um, actually at the lovely Esalen uh, setting. Mm. And um, it sort of made sense, although... I. Little did I know that those two things, sort of Eastern philosophy and the, the improv games, would end up kind of coming together in such a fundamental way mm. in, in my life and experience. I wasn't looking at that. Um, I was just having fun doing Tai Chi dance and then playing some yes and games and hat games with Keith. So in that experience, <laughs> it was more like they were sequential right. or neighboring and not... Right. interweaving or overlapping. Yeah, they didn't, they, they never uh, did something together. Mm -hmm. uh, Al did his thing, we did Tai Chi, and, and sometimes we did calligraphy. There were arts parts of that. It was, it was really fun to be in a beautiful setting with people dancing and, and learning your body. Right. And, um, and then Keith would, would step onto the stage and scratch his head like he does, and, <laughs> and his tie would have egg on it, and he'd say, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. What does anybody want to know, or something like that? <laughs> and then we'd, you know, we'd start doing Keith stuff. Mm. And uh, there was something compelling about all of that. And you both know that then I started teaching improv um, first as part of the acting classes. I, I integrated it to some of the games and things. And um, there, around 1980, um, students seemed to want more. So there was a kind of hue and cry from an early group of uh, undergraduates saying, we want a whole improv class. It's not enough just to have some games and an act. Did they class. show up with space object pitchforks and they torches? Yeah, torches. <laughs> so I, uh, I threw myself uh, at the mercy of the then the drama department and Charles Lyons, the chairman, said, can I, can I teach a, uh, an improv class? Oh, sure, you know, why not? So um, that got started. And, and then um, almost once there was a, a beginning improv class in the curriculum, the, just the flood of people interested in that topic began coming forward. Mm -hmm. So it was no longer acting students. In fact, it was almost heavily business and engineering and law and yeah. um, people that, uh, the word improv in 1980 didn't quite have the, no. uh, the cachet and the, uh, the trendiness that it does now, but somehow um, it, early on, there was there was an understanding in this um, heaven of intellectual uh, learning that there was something missing, and that improv could help um, help with that. And I collaborated a lot with uh, a man named Rolf Fasti, who's passed on. He was um, one of the heads of the product design program in engineering, mm -hmm. and he got it. In fact, he he has the distinction of being the single full-time faculty member who has ever taken the 103 basic class from beginning to end. That's he showed so cool. up Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, just like any other student. And and because he, he wanted to get it all. Yeah. Because he saw that, that there was something in this paradigm that uh, had real value for uh, thinkers and humans and designers and whatnot. So uh, this, this timeline, I just want to make sure I get this clear. So you, your workshop with Al and Keith at Esalen was what year? Was, uh, I think that was like 79. 79, so you started teaching improv. A couple years later. A couple yeah, years around, after that. around 80, because I think the simps were formed in 81. The simps? Yeah. Simps were formed in 91. 91, sorry. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Because uh, there, there was... <clears throat> Just after I graduated, they, okay. the simps were formed. God, yep. I was giving them 10 more years. <laughs> so it was, no, it was the early 80s. Um, yeah. I may be, I, my dates may be um, off by a couple of years, but early 80s that um, I was doing things with 
Alan Alan Keith. Esselin. Yeah. And then uh, and then I started. I think the first improv classes maybe were mid eighties. Yeah. yeah. I took it. I took it in dorm from Scott Allen. I don't know if you remember Scott. I but, do. Yeah. Uh, and he worked in the admissions office at Stanford, and he offered a dorm-based class for ten weeks, my freshman year, and I took that, nice. fell in love with it, and then came and took your class in the, my sophomore year, in the fall. So what year was more. that? Then? So that I was with you fall of '87. '87. Okay. And so you had been doing it for a few years at mm -hmm. that point. Of course, it felt like so established. Yeah. Like. Oh my gosh! This is a program, you know, and it's just been a couple of years, and you know, now being an adult, like, and then knowing how these things emerge organically, I'm like, hmm, let me try teaching this for a while. Yeah. You know, I was like, I also I just love the way you just described the beginning of Sims, is you were, or rather, the beginning of improv at Stanford. Uh, I love that you were responding to what was needed. Like there was a st group of students who were like, we want more of this. And you were like, well, all right, let me find a way to say yes to that then. Let's yeah. let's do it. Exactly. But it wasn't kind of like grand vision out of nothing of like Stanford needs an improv program and here's what it'll look like. It was like, oh, Never. there seems to be a need for this. Yeah. Well, let me see if then I can fill that. And, and it was interesting. It was very organic because... Uh, one of so okay let's have it's let's have um, an improv class and then can we have an advanced improv class that's actually how Sims started because mm. we, we had a 103 going on for four or five years and then that was the group that included Dan Klein and Adam and the people that were the the, <laughs> the original 16 Sims that group was all in school together and doing interesting things and they said we really we really want to have an advanced class do more we want of to this. do this more together so I said, okay, and drama said, all right, you know. In those days, lecturers, maybe they still are, were teaching 11 or 12 classes a year. Oh my gosh. Uh, That's the, a lot. The, the professoriate teach three or four. They don't want, they don't work, want to work them too hard. The yeah. lecturers have 11, 12. We had three or four per quarter. So um, I said, can I teach in advance? Yeah, yeah, okay, go ahead. And. Um, now, all right, advanced class. Well, what does that mean? Do we just let anybody in? So, I don't know. It seems if we're really going to do something advanced, we have to limit it. We can't have a big group. So, I guess, I don't know what to do. Let's have auditions. I don't like that because I don't really like comparing people. But one day, we announced there'd be auditions for the, um, the advanced improv class for the next fall. And... Um, 16 people showed up. Mm. So I said, you're all in. Yeah. <laughs> Problem solved. Problem solved. Yeah, this, and, is, uh, this is exactly as popular as yeah, it needs to be. It really, it's just great. In fact, I think um, there's one simp that we haven't heard from, Jadeep, mm. um, that I, I, I've lost track. I still have his name, but he... He has never shown up for any of the... Uh, oh, Jadeep, where are you? Where are you, Jadeep? If you if you listening at home, no Jadeep. Send him our way. Well, Calling the out other, and the all other... points bulletin for Jadeep. <laughs> I've seen roaming the hills of Stanford University. <laughs> In 1987. Well, the other 15 or 16, uh, I, I mean, my numbers may be off, but I'm in touch right now with almost all, uh, all of the original sense. Patricia, that is remarkable. It is remarkable. Like, this is something that I have noticed. Years later. Yeah. It's something that I've noticed through Stanford Improv reunions and mm -hmm. things that no matter what field people go into, this is formative work for them. Mm -hmm. Like, people feel like there's life before improv and life after improv in a way, and that once you do improv, there's no leaving it behind, at least in the Stanford program. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's because of how it's taught or the intensity with which it's taught, that it's 10 weeks, three times a week. There's a, a lot of exposure. You get to dive deep. You gain an understanding with a consistent group of people that, you know, and the fact that 25 years later, or, tw yeah, there these original 16 are still yeah. in Involved, touch with you and engaged and invested in this in this work and these relationships is like really... It's a miracle to me. It's really it, striking. It, and it, it, it's defined what my life has been. Um, I never set out to, uh, to have this happen, but it's been, it's something so much larger than, than me or mm -hmm. Stanford because something got started 
that, I would say, reality wanted to keep going. It was like a good life form was created through the uh, beginning groups. And it found a way to perpetuate itself um, and keep going. I would never have believed um, when we first started that 10 years into the thing, there'd still be simps, much less uh, close to 30 now. Yeah. Um, I, th I think a big, a big part of that, maybe what, part of what you're pointing to, Lisa, is the, is the way you teach it and have taught it and the way that now Dan Klein, yeah. you know, one of your students, uh, and Lisa now, and Lisa now, and other folks who teach there, that it's it's infused with compassion and concern for the for other people, you know, uh, and about the well-being of the folks you're playing with. And, an, and an approach to it's an a, approach, it's a, to, it's an approach to to life and, com yeah. and compassion for yourself. I yes. mean, I think that's yeah, a that huge yeah. part of it. Yeah. That it's not just taking care of other people; it's letting yourself off the hook when you make failure, right. when you make mistakes. And I overheard Dan. I overheard. Dan teaching one day. It was like he teaches right before I do. So I was just listening to the last part of his class. I want to say it was the second day of class. And I heard the I heard him say, Sometimes I think that what I'm what I'm here to do is stand in front of a bunch of Stanford students and tell them to embrace failure and that and to shoot for average. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that and wonderful? I, and there's yeah. something to that so deep in that that he's like, I've come to some of the highest achieving students in the country, in the world, yeah. in the world, in the world yeah. to tell you it's okay if you fail and it's okay to shoot for average. You don't have to be outstanding here. You don't have to be, you don't have to excel in this class. Mm -hmm. And I think it is, my experience teaching has been that it, that is such a valuable message. I think it changes the way people look at their own happiness and their own choices. Yeah. And, and that there's a sense of belonging that comes out of that so that you know, this program and this, again, the, that you're still in touch with folks from so long ago, uh, suggests a kind of community cohesion. And, and I, I've seen that happen in improv communities around, around the country, around the world, where that thread is there. Mm -hmm. the, the communities where it's not there, it feels a little shinier and like something people dabble in for a while and then maybe they leave it, but it doesn't have that lasting well there's heartful. a heart connection somehow yes. and i think i i don't know how this happens um but i do think that stanford improv the way i started teaching it and the way uh, dan and lisa have continued is is value-based yes and um the older i get the more i'm perfectly willing to say something in the classroom room like it's it's really important to be nice to each other i mean that's, that's, how can you tell people to be nice to each other? But if you're a Stanford faculty member, you by definition have some kind of status. So we need status figures who are willing to, to say it's okay to fail. So you could hear this okay to fail message, um, uh, let yourself off the hook message from somebody else, some slick salesman, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't <laughs> penetrate. <laughs> but the reason Dan can, I believe, can affect great generations of brilliant thinkers is because he has that platform at Stanford. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's why it has been um, kind of the, the guiding vision of my life to see that tradition stay at Stanford. Um, because it's um, Stanford, Stanford's status feeds improv's power. Mm. And there, um, and, and my dream would be that someday there's an endowed chair of improvisation and innovation so that, that improv is not necessarily tied to any department because I think it's a strange bedfellow in a way with almost everybody, although yep. everybody likes it. Um, but uh, it's... Uh, <laughs> all we need is, I don't know, two, three million dollars to get an endowment and then, then we can see that this goes on beyond any of our particular lives. You know, it'd be great yeah. if Jadeep showed up with $3 million to endow a chair. Like, that's where he's been. <laughs> he's, he's been, been racking up it. dough. He's that's been out it. making money. He's like, I don't have time, but as soon as I rack up this money, I'm coming back, returned. and there's going to be a an endowed improv chair at yeah. Stanford. And we can call it the Jadeep, the Jadeep, <laughs> Jadeep chair. Yeah. I'm endowed Jadeep, improv. if you want to let us know how, where you, if you need to know where to send the check, <laughs> where to send the check, info we, at monsterbabypodcast.com. Mon 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 yes. We'll let you know.
<laughs> There's an interesting thing about um, when, when Sims got started, it was almost, I wanted an advanced class, but it was almost against my will because you probably, you two know, but not all of your listeners know, I don't perform. I'm, I am scared to death to get up on stage and try to make a story. I would uh, blow it entirely. I am not an improv performer. I think I'm an improv teacher, and I'm not at all afraid to uh, see what happens in a classroom. Oh, that's our bird. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. We have, a, we have a clock here. There's a little bird. I love that clock. Tells us it's four o'clock. Yeah, it chimes with a different bird song every hour. It, and Is that the, right? It does, but not the correct one. Okay. Ted actually... Well, um, it used to be not the correct one, I think. Did you get it right? I think we changed it. One time I was visiting, and, and the clock went off, and I was like, that's not the right bird. Yeah. Which is like an amazing thing that you would be like, wait a minute, yeah, which that's one not is... a red-tailed warbler. It's like, okay, who knows that? Ted de Maison knows that. Ornithologist. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. But I didn't, uh, so we're going to have an, uh, an advanced class, and, and, and uh, what, what do we call ourselves? Actually, Barbara Scott named, she said, what do you call the Stanford improvisers? Uh, Sims, why don't you call them Sims? Barbara Scott named the Simps. Barbara That's Scott it. is one of the long-standing company members at BATS. At BATS. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant performer and musical theater uh, teacher extraordinaire. Yeah, um, she's incredible. So I said, oh, okay, we'll keep doing more improv and learning things, but I don't know that I can be much help coaching you in uh, performance. But they wanted to perform. They were all hot to do end of quarter, to what became the end of quarter shows. And um, there was a, a gal named Linda, who is not a member of the Simps, um, who said, you have, you have to have them perform, Patricia, because that's part of it all. Okay, so I let... Was I she think, an improviser? No, no. Was she a member of the faculty? She, or? No, she was a student. Oh. In fact, she, she did... She was a slick salesman. She, uh, in fact, I was, Linda Roberts is her name. If you're listening, Linda Roberts. Been, <laughs> Bring that $3 million back for you. I've been trying to get in touch with her. The alumni don't give out, uh, uh, um, don't give out names and numbers of, of folks, but she was, um, she was instrumental in the beginning of all this. And then never really, she just stood back and watched it grow and then graduated and went on. I don't know what she's done in life, but I'd love to find her. Linda Roberts. Come back. Oh, we should do an intense um, Facebook search. So Sims started uh, doing end of quarter shows and performing and doing things in the dorms and all of a sudden, and then their, their aesthetic, their uh, way of working together kind of grew. And I would stand like a kind of proud or sometimes alarmed parent on the side watching <laughs> what was going on. And uh, uh, I would sometimes go to a dorm show and bite my lips. <laughs> But, you know, they're doing what they're doing, and they're learning, and I don't, uh, I have no right to tell them anything about performance. They will figure it out. Oh, my gosh, Patricia, I love hearing, <laughs> the, I love hearing that, hearing the, what your experience oh, that was. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I'm, I'm curious to hear more about your, I, I don't know, maybe resistance is too strong a word, but your decision or your preference not to perform. What, Me? What, what's that about? It was because I came, I was an actress right. for 25 years. I did summer stock Colorado Shakespeare Festival. And um, I know what you might say is the, um, is the life cost of being on stage at night or being in shows. And, uh, and it, was, it was like too costly for me. In terms of social relationships? That you would In have? terms of my lifetime, I wasn't willing to give up five nights a week yes. um, and drive across the world to go to show up and be in front of lights. I might have gotten hooked on it if I ever did it, possibly. I, I think about myself, I'm, not, I'm just, I don't know whether I'd be very good. I do know I've got a lot of characters in me because I was a character actress. and. Um, did a lot of Shakespeare. And so I was, um, but there was something about improv playing that never, that never grabbed me. And I knew if I started to get involved, I was just too happy being married and being a teacher and having kind of a normal social life. So it was kind of like you discovered 
you discovered improv after you had already left performing. Right. And so it just didn't hit you at the right time in your life where it was mm-hmm. like time to get involved in actually participating in it. Yeah, I see. I think that was that was it. And, I see. Uh, and I admire performance, and I know that it is completely absorbing. All the years that I was acting, I was single. So, And when you're single, you've got kind of life space in all directions. Yeah. And you can choose what to do. And you've got nights free. You got nights free. You got nights free. But when you're married, somehow, um, you, you know, if you've got a happy marriage, you want to kind of hang out with your husband, not run off to uh, rehearsals every night. Mm-hmm. And not, not that improv has. I mean, you could say, well, they don't have that many rehearsals, but it's still um, being on stage at night in front of an audience in some kind of regular way is uh, is a big life. Hmm. Life commitment. A and life I, cost. I like the way you put that. Yeah, I, I had done that enough, and now I was happy to, uh, on the occasion, sit in the audience and let and let the world uh, thrill me, like they did this weekend. The mm-hmm. fantastic long-form improv festival, the Bats Company. Uh, Lisa directed uh, Shakespeare on Saturday night, and Rafe directed uh, two musicals on Friday night in the little theater, Pickett. And it was so... It was thrilling. I'd been wanting for years to see that level of performance happen on our campus. Mm-hmm. And I think The Sims now, I have, um, they have uh, had some really advanced uh, years, and I think they're doing some amazing work. The Sims are doing cool stuff. cool stuff. They're doing almost exclusively long form. They're doing yeah. Shakespeare long form this quarter. They're exploring different mm-hmm. disciplines. So a couple of them went down to UCB in LA and did some intensives and are coming back and teaching the rest of the group what they learned. I mean, it's really, that group is so robust. It's marvelous. It's really amazing. It must be amazing for you to see that. It is. Long after you've left it. Completely, um, uh, I am in awe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Truly in awe. Um, It's really fun. It's really fun. It just really feels like it's its own. uh, I wanted to circle back to an earlier question about the sort of the life way aspect of the work. We were talking a little bit about the performance and um, acting uh, side of improv. How that developed came from, the, the story here is that Ross McCall, who was one of the original 16 simps, his father, um, Marsh McCall, was head of classics and then was the first assistant dean of continuing studies. And in the second year of that program, Ross, Marsh McCall's son, who was a simp, said to his dad, you should get this Patricia Ryan to teach a class for your continuing studies. Have her teach an improv class. So um, I got a uh, request. Would I be interested in in, uh, doing a class for continuing studies? And I said, I have no idea. I said, I don't know whether adults would be interested in this stuff at all, and I have no idea whether, I, I'm not sure how I would teach it, but man, I'm game, I'll, I'll do it if you want. Let's run it up the flagpole. Yeah. So they announced a kind of beginning improv class in the second or third year of continuing studies right around 1982. And the thing filled up and, uh, and expanded immediately uh, as all improv classes beginning would seem to do. Yeah. Um, and then so I started teaching the basic 10 week course to these adults. Now, the, the, the human, uh, the life dimension comes in when week after week, these Silicon Valley executives and librarians and, and uh, adults and retirees who are professors would come up to me after class and say, you know, these things we're learning here are so valuable. It's, it's very good life advice. I'm finding that I'm much more, <laughs> I'm listening better to my spouse. Or at work, I've started saying yes and, you know, to those people. And golly, things are going better. You should write a book about this. So my continuing studies adults were the ones that kept telling me they would come back. I didn't think this is going to help your life. But they would say this is helping my life. And I thought, oh, well, golly, maybe so. And, and 20 I, years later, you wrote that book. And, and it was, I, was, um, I was a philosophy major, actually, um, in college. I've always been interested in the kind of the mountaintop view of, mm. of how things work. And so even though I got into theater and practical stuff, I needed something practical to do. I always loved looking at it from the 
Hmm, the philosophical, psychological. I love that you just called going into theater practical. Yeah. I love that. I mean, I get that the, for, by the definition of like, you're actually doing something. You're not just like kind of theorizing mm -hmm. about something. Reading. Right. It, I, it, I, it would I mean, be defined as impractical by a lot of the world. <laughs> like that you just called it practical. Well, exactly. But it, you, you uses your hands and body. You had to get up and go somewhere and walk around the stage yeah. and learn some lines and go to the bar afterwards and yeah. stuff like that. Right. You got to. It's, well, I love it's that. fascinating to me that what you're describing, Patricia, because that sounds like there was some time that you had been teaching it where you weren't necessarily aware of these life principles coming through. And yet, before you wrote your, I think, well, I, when did your book come out? 2005. 2005. And, and when were you at Stanford? 2000, 2005. Yeah. So, and for me, like I took your course and I had that sense of it too. So like there was something about the way that you were teaching it that it was communicating to your adults and to your undergraduates that, this isn't just improv, you know. So some, I'm, I'm sure something in your presence or your way, or in terms of timeline and and what was going on, that was the the 80s through the 90s were when I got involved with constructive living and okay. David K. Reynolds, and so what was going on for me philosophically and psychologically is I was studying a life way uh -huh. called constructive living with a teacher, David K. Reynolds, who is still um, an active teacher and a great writer of many books. And he founded the, this paradigm called constructive living based on two Japanese psychotherapies, Morita psychotherapy and Nikon psychotherapy. So I, I had fallen in with him and was his main devotee. And um, he did trainings in constructive living. Uh, I assisted him for almost 20 years. Wow. And then taught it myself. I was the first person he certified to be able to teach his system to others. Wow. And, um, and it, it's very simple principles, but you'll, you'll recognize them immediately. It's know your purpose, accept reality, accept your feelings, whatever they are, and then do what needs to be done. Yeah. And all the while, notice how you're receiving more from the world than you could ever give back. So those four things, know your purpose, accept reality, do what needs to be done, and look at the world with, from the vantage point of notice what you're receiving. Now, I was sort of uh, inculcated with that life way idea for um, a long time. So that was what I was, mm -hmm. I was learning that this is how you live and these are good guidelines. You don't let your feelings run the show. They're important and wonderful, but um, you have to ask yourself what's your purpose rather than what do I feel like now? So I was, understanding that, looking at the world through that lens of constructive living, and teaching improv classes. So what, okay. I yeah. wonder what happened. The constructive living uh, way of looking at the world began bleeding into everything I did. And I would say, you don't have to you know, feel like this to do it. Oh, okay. And that ended up being good improv advice. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I think if I have a, um, a particular purpose, it was that I brought together these um, Japanese ideas of well-being and uh, mental health together with the art form and the, and, and the games playing of, of improv. Was his, uh, was David K. Reynolds' work explicitly linked with Buddhism? Because you named it as a Japanese psychotherapy, but... It was um, not explicitly, but he, uh, but the two Japanese people um, from whom he derived this work, Yoshimoto Ishin, who was the founder of Nikon, was a Jodo Shinshi Buddhist. Founder of Nikon, the camera company? No, Nikon, the, uh, thank, thank you, you. The Ni Nikon, the, yeah. uh, the concept, yes. the, uh, the meditation practice. Just wanted to make sure, yeah. Right, there's a meditation practice called Nikon where you reflect on three questions. What have I received from others? What have I given to others? And what trouble and bother have I caused others? Just those questions. You don't pay attention to what trouble and bother others have caused you because we all know that. We're real well good. We're, we're very familiar with that fourth question. So, um, so we try to get our mind around the other three. And those three questions are really interesting and powerful. And if you, if you use them, not in just a generic way, oh gosh, I guess 
yeah, I get a lot from a lot of people, and I don't, you know, I don't do too much, but, uh, and I guess I trouble people. But that abstraction is not the same as sitting with um, a very clear kind of uh, question and answer to yourself about, actually, what does that mean? Will you say, the, say the three again, the three questions? What have I received from X? And it can from be the another, world or individuals or... It, yeah. it usually, um, in the formal practice, you, you do it with your mother and your father um, and significant others in your life. So you ask, during my grammar school years, what have I received from my mother? And then you try to figure out what did she do for you? What did you get from her when you were uh, a teenager? Uh, and what did I give back to her? So I'm going to try to remember the, did I make a present for her? Um, maybe a lanyard is... Uh -huh. uh, so really dial in and get specific. Yeah, yeah, get specific. What did I give to her? And um, did I cause her any trouble? Well, of course I don't mean to. And oh Lord, there's that time. Then you remember that time that mother stayed up all night to make a, um, on the sewing machine, to make a skirt for me for my, uh, uh, I was a cheerleader. And um, the next morning she presented it to me and I said, oh, I hate this, it doesn't fit. And I kind of threw it on the floor. So all of a sudden now, in remembering that memory, I realized what, ah, oh, how that must have hurt her to stay up all night and then have this kind of a, I don't like this, ooh, it's awful. Kids, all of us, uh, are little, 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 can I say it on the radio? Little shits. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and, but we don't, remember ourselves as that. We right. might remember that our mother didn't show up at the school play for me the time I wanted her. Yeah. But um, when you look at your life, current or past, with this lens, with those three questions, you get a whole different thing. And it, um, it's such a powerful practice. Mm -hmm. um, I went to Japan and sat for a week and went through my whole life and did this. And I, I know it changed me fundamentally. It's also the thing that I, um, that I think people need the most to learn about. That they're not, uh, we, all, we all from our own vantage point are the center of the universe. But somehow if you find another perspective, you can see yourself in relationship to others and realize how much we really are gifted by what others do mm. constantly, practically. And so the part of that question then is, it's like, what gifts did I receive from other people? Because I think of gift having a positive connotation. Because right. I could say, well, my father gave me, you know, a, an attitude of screw the world, and now I'm, you know, jaded. Swift but, kick and me yeah. But that's not what the no. practice is no, about, No, in right? fact, if somebody says, what did you receive from your mother? Uh, well, she, you know, she, she made me hate. Uh, she taught me what I don't like. Yet. That's called gaikon, which is not inner looking but outer looking. It's okay. sort of um, so that it's they're very clear that we are looking for uh, what you might consider positive. In fact, I mean, I like the idea of gifts. Um, sometimes the we don't see a gift as something positive. She she gave me something, but you're right. We're we're looking for any examples using our own value system of what. Um, what they did for me or it to served me. us. Yeah, how, how they served me. And in fact, when you're in, in Japan, one of the tasks we had was to calculate the number of meals that your mother prepared for you from age, um, from birth to age 12. Oh my gosh. To do, do the mathematical. And how many, how many dishes did she wash? And how much money did she spend on your um, school uniforms and education? And then how much money did you spend uh, for her, et cetera. So you're, you're actually, the interesting thing is Yoshimoto Ishin, the founder of, of Nikon in Japan, was a little Japanese businessman. He made a fortune. Uh, he had invented um, and distributed Naga hide. Uh, and he was a <laughs> Crazy. And he, this little Japanese businessman um, uh, was a Buddhist, and he did a, a meditation form called Mishirabe. Mishirabe was where you, you don't eat or drink, you, you kind of fast and are in austerity for a number of days, and you meditate on your debt to the world, just that topic. And you're meant to try to enumerate how you are indebted to the world. And uh, the, as the story goes, this young Mr. Yoshimoto 
um, sat for three or four days and, and kind of went into a, an altered state of consciousness and, 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 and had an enlightenment experience looking at his debt to the world. And after he came out, he was so uh, such a kind of uh, an inspired uh, character. He wanted to find a way to have ordinary humans have this enlightenment experience. And because he was a businessman, he came up with this, this rubric, which was kind of an accounting system. Make a list of what you've received, mm -hmm. make a list of what you've given and the trouble you've caused. Mm -hmm. And so those three questions, um, he started kind of going around proselytizing. Um, now those three questions and the Nikon meditation form is practiced in Japan, in prisons, and they're all, all it's kind of widespread. Some business businesses have all of their employees have to do this before they... I remember the first time I ever learned about it, you did it with the simps. And you mm -hmm. had us all sit down and write, what gifts have I gotten from simps? Mm -hmm. What have I given simps and what trouble have I caused the, the group? Yeah. And I was like a freshman and it was like, what? What? <laughs> yeah, it's really... So really? I have a question. <gasps> Interesting. Like what made you, I'm interested in, in what inspired you about David K. Reynolds' work or rather was there something in your life that made you really need that work at that time mm -hmm. or what inspired you to go sit for a week in Japan and do this meditation? Was this just always the kind of experience that you like having because you're introspective, you're a philosophy major, you like kind of thinking about the way things are and the way things could be mm -hmm. or was it something in reaction to a something going on in your world that was like needing that. I, I've always been a seeker. Mother mother would say to me, I don't know what you're looking seeking for, Patricia, you know, and I, I said, I don't know either, you know, I just, but I'm interested in stuff. I like to read things and I like to, uh, I was just curious. Um, philosophy drew me, how things work. And I think I was also looking for uh, a path Mm -hmm. Some kind of because I used to always go to different churches. I was I collected religions as a teenager. I, used to, I would pretend to be a Jew and go to a synagogue and I would do all the things. Or I pretend to be a Catholic and go take communion. And yeah, I was just a mess because I ever loved, do Native American? Hmm? Ever do Native American? I but, didn't ever do Native okay. America. I miss I miss Native American. But I did once I got to California. I did all the different. Uh, Eastern things that I could, four or five different kinds of Buddhism and Taoism, and oh, I was a Sufi for a while, my lord. So I've always been on this kind of religious uh, quest. And somehow, in the midst of all of that, somebody handed me the book, Playing Ball on Running Water, which is one of Reynolds' books. And I read it, and it was just, I don't know whether you've ever had an experience where you, um, something just struck true, that this is, this really is it, isn't it? Interesting. Yeah. And then I found that he was a writer and I could find some other books by him. I, I have to, and somewhere in one of the books it said um, he teaches classes and teaches people. Um, he has certification trainings. And I thought, I'm gonna find this guy. So he, it, this was before the internet where you could mm -hmm. look up somebody's name and get an email. So I wrote to the publisher, uh, I think it was Random House, and um, no, William Morris, right, I'm Random House. William Morris, I wrote to him and I sent him a letter saying, I'd really like to um, meet you and study with you. Do you ever do any classes? And I didn't hear back from him. So, um, well, that blew it off. Nine months later, I got a letter, personal letter from him saying, I just this morning got your letter. William Morris would wait until they got a bundle and they would send them to me. So oh, wow. your letter of nine months had been sitting in- A little gestation period. Yeah. Waiting for and, enough. And he says, I apologize for the delay and what can I do for you? Yes, I'm having a training in February in Hawaii. I dropped everything and, and went. I was teaching at Stanford at the time. And um, so it was that there was something I needed to, to explore. And when I went to study with him, everything this teacher said made sense to me. Mm. Uh, and I, and I, he wasn't, it wasn't because he was trying to get me to believe anything. It's basically, he said, I'm not your teacher. He says, reality is your teacher. You know, look around, pay attention to reality, and then do what needs to be done. Just don't sit and scratch your head. I, yeah, <laughs> I just love that. I, I have noticed over the years how you talk about reality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, learning to trust reality, mm -hmm. learning to resp accept reality, mm -hmm. understanding the gifts that reality gives us. And I love that word because it's undeniable. <laughs> like, you don't have to believe in anything right. to believe that, rea like, that reality is there because that's, that's what it is. 
and I, I just, and this idea of doing what needs to be, accept your feelings and do what needs to be done. Then you, you gave me one of my favorite quotes ever, and I think this was at the Sims 10 year reunion. So I think this was in 20, 2000, no, or maybe ago. 20. Anyway, you said, life is too short to waste it trying to feel good all the time. And that, that like hit me because I feel like so often we're chasing feeling good. Trying to be happy. Yeah. Trying to be happy and there's this, it's like of course we want to be happy but there's this way about, then, then we get into this thing of if I'm not happy something's wrong and I've got to, you know, if I don't feel good today then like what's wrong and I have to fix that. I have to fix that I before I can do what needs to be done. I have to like straighten that out so that I feel better before I, before I get on with it and sometimes it's like you just got to get on with it. I like this word reality too because it's it sounds like I think you've said before Patricia that it could be a stand-in for God. Sure. Right. It could yeah. be. A, yeah. But it's it's non-religious. You don't have to believe in God for reality to be true. But God is like a triggering word for Absolutely. some people. So right. like, I'm yeah. like God. I don't know, but I know about reality. Reality's sure. here. Like we all well, know. Well, it's that. interesting. Probably too. The reality you're talking about is with a little R. When Reynolds writes it, he writes it with a capital R. Uh -huh. And so, it, in a way, it's halfway between. That's cool. But by giving the capital yeah. R, um, it, it becomes... Um, he's fond of saying, uh, we don't need self-esteem. You know, sometimes I am really stupid and make mistakes. And if I just try to like myself, because sometimes I'm nice and sometimes I'm an asshole. But what we need is reality esteem. Uh. And reality esteem is recognizing the amazingness of what we're receiving and how, and that's what improvisers do. It seems to me you trust that reality, that's the other players, what's going on tonight, everything you've learned in the past, all of this swirling, amazing moment. The last choice that was just made. Mm -hmm. Will provide you with what's needed. So we have esteem or a sense of confidence in that reality's gonna provide what I need. Yeah. Yeah. I may not even like it, but it will sustain me. And that's so much cooler than self-esteem. Oh, yeah, so one, one of the, this is so I love uh, juicy. That. One of the I things I love that. about this too is that it calls on the discipline of mindfulness or meditation practice to say, reality's there, and I've got all these filters that may be in the way of my being able to see it or experience it. So my discipline is to peel away, to learn to see clearly, like, oh, that's my fear or, oh, that's my mental pattern or my rumination that I tend to do that's interrupting what's actually happening is something else. Mm. And it, it, tying into the what you were saying before about the Nikon exercise, that when you go and identify those pieces that the world has given you, reality has given you, or your mother or your father or your loved ones, as I've heard you describe before, it's not really a gratitude exercise. It's an acknowledgement exercise, and that gratitude often naturally emerges because mm. of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's the intention isn't gratitude. The intention is, let's look at reality. This is true, and you are interwoven, or you you exist because all these things have been given to you. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm glad you brought that up because it's not a gratitude exercise. Yeah. And yet it leads to gratitude sometimes. Uh, it leads to awe, but it leads, if you really look at the detail of your life and the lives around you, you're going to see more reality. And, um, and that, uh, that's just got profound consequences. Mm -hmm. And you're right. I think there are all sorts of meditation and mindfulness practices that are helping to try to work with these filters that we all put on. And, right. um, but the goal, however you do it, is to keep coming back to reality. And Reynolds is fond of saying too that it's not what we think or feel that impacts the world. It has zero effect on the, uh, on the ecology, or, but it's what we do that matters. You can be a great ecologist, but if you walk over that piece of, of trash on the street and don't dispose of it properly, uh, you're missing a real opportunity. So. And your brilliant insights don't help anyone if what you're doing is not helping. Right, if you're not doing anything. Yeah. So that's, what, that's why it's called constructive living, about um, start doing whatever it is. Start where you are. Start where you are, what comes next. I love it because it fits in with Keith's things like, uh, like um, what comes next 
as, um, as, as the primary question that we have to ask, not where are we going or some kind of big philosophical, but what do I need to do now and next? Yeah, I, I shared on an earlier podcast how a couple of years ago when I was trying to determine whether should I move to California or not, that I called you and, and asked for your suggestion. You said, you know, the great thing is you don't need to know the end of the story, you just need to know what comes next. And then that became a helpful decision-making mantra for me of just, uh, okay, I don't know. I just, I know well, I need to go to California. Next step seems to be here. So we'll I'll take that step and then we'll figure it out. Yeah. 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 And and it's so, it is so valuable on stage too to realize, especially when we're sharing control with another person. It's just one of the things I enjoy about doing this podcast with, with you, Lisa. It's like, we sort of come up with an idea and we're like, well, here's this comment I want to make or here's a question I want to ask. Mm-hmm. And we'll trust that the reality of the experience is going to bring something we'll forward. We'll have something new. Yeah. Into the next moment. All right. So there was part one of our conversation with Patricia Ryan Madsen. And in a way, we are now giving you, we're, we've broken the conversation up into two parts simply for time's sake. So this is, in a, in a way, your intermission between this episode, part one of this episode, and part two. Yeah, so if you need to stretch, use the restroom, get some popcorn. Yeah, get, go to work. Get some jujubes. Yeah, oh. then go do it. Oh, wait, work? <laughs> no, no. I suppose, it's true. Oh, yeah, yeah. or if you need to park the car. You and park the car. Come back to us on your way home. Exactly, then, yeah. then do that. But we do hope you'll stick around for the second part of this conversation uh, with Patricia Ryan Madsen. More wisdom dispensation on the way. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see you on the second half. Yep.